Larry Crane is a Portland recording engineer, producer, and founder of Tape Op Magazine, and owner of Jackpot Studios. You've likely heard his work with bands like The Decemberists, Sleater Kinney, Elliot Smith, and more. On this episode, part one of two, we talk about his past as a musician, a fan, and what makes a good record. On this episode of Times Like Now. Hello, Larry Crane. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Excellent. You have a a long and storied past of production as a as a music producer. And this episode, I'm going to try and squeeze in a bunch of stuff about your past and your present and maybe about the future of production. But starting off with some basics, what do you do as a music producer? What is music producing and what is good production? You know, it's always the hardest question. You know, with with my magazine, Tape Op, we've explored that for a quarter century now. And, you know, like, what is a producer? And um, I really, I, I think that I found out for myself that a producer is someone who who steps into the scenario of of recording music uh, and, may, and really lends a guiding hand. Instead of just saying like, oh, it's been recorded and then sit there like a lump in the recording studio or whatever and not give any feedback and not try to guide the session. I feel like a producer is someone who really invests themselves in the process and helps the artist get their best material, helps them sort out how things should really be presented and then keeps an eye on, on presenting the music in the best way they can, uh, you know, whether it's changing the key of a song, the length of a song, uh, vocal takes, vocal melodies, words, you know, there's a million things in the process of making a record and having uh, an outside eye on that or ear, I should say, is really important. I guess in that sense, uh, producer is a good word for it, but really more in the, a narrative, uh, like a film director, you're more of a director in that regard. I think so, but I don't think so, because in, in it, there can be very many different roles of a record producer, but a, mu- a film director, which I actually have a degree in filmmaking, um, a film director is frequently is is really in charge of what's being presented and making the the movie happen uh in a way that's quite different because in many cases the film director might even even written the the movie but and and the movie is being said this is their vision of this movie and when i work with an artist it's very much a collaboration it's it's their record that we're making it's not my record and no of course I, yeah. I was, I'm sorry. I was going to say that. I mean, as a, I've done video production and, yeah. and as a director, yeah. working with the actor to get the best from them in that way that you work with an yeah. artist to get the best from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does this scene need? What does this song need in yeah. that way? Working collaboratively as a director. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. Um, but I think it, it doesn't, it, it, it's also like, um, I guess the same way that a film director would be like, am I making a documentary? Am I making a, a drama? You know, you help guide that. But, um, on you know, it's always a collaboration. It's never like, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, Ken Russell or something. It's not my vision. It's, it's, it's the artist's vision. And, the, and I, I'm there to support that. So in my, in my experience, it's a very, very collaborative process. And I really, if, if someone comes in, 
and wants me to work with them and doesn't have like sort some sort of vision like if they go should this be a reggae song or a jazz song or a you know i've had that happen and i'm like oh i really think you need to figure that out like i'm not gonna i can't guide the entire thing but you know somebody can come in and say i have a song i play guitar and what do you think it needs i can be like oh well let's put drums on it let's i'll play bass let's do things to this in this style we'll talk about music they like and what kind of genre or world it fits in and and that's fun that's a fun creative process excellent um so where are you from uh are you from portland oregon <laughs> No, well, I, I am now, but no, I was born in Berkeley, California. Okay. Yeah, okay. In the in the early early sixties, and uh, I grew up in Oakland as a little kid. So that kind of gives me a little bit about your musical upbringing. But that was another question: was what did you listen to as a kid? What inspired you as a as an early music fan? And what made you want to get into into producing and to doing what you do? Um, I mean, my whole path in music has all been sort of situational and accidental so but as a as a kid you know um, my parents were friends with the drummer from Credence Clearwater Revival Doug Clifford and my mom had uh, dated one of the members of Roy Orbison's like early band when he was just right out of high school and uh, so the stories and the stuff around us was always like you know music is something people can do my parents weren't very musical at all but uh, they knew musicians and they knew artists and stuff so there was always records, you know, playing at our house, like Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Beatles and and uh, Roy Orbison and Credence, of course, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, as I got older, I, you know, like in high school, I started really getting into music and I was really into like, you know, this would have been the late 70s. Uh, and I was really into the punk movement stuff. A friend of mine turned me on to like Gang of Four and a lot of bands like that, but I really like prog rock too. Like a real, it's a real dichotomy to be like listening to Pink Floyd and Genesis and Jethro Tull, but also the Sex Pistols and, and things like that. But that, that really is my background. You know, when I heard some of the bands that sort of actually melded it, like, uh, like wires one, five, four and records like that, I, I was like, Oh, this is, this is what I like. Like something like post-punk, the joy division, things like that, you know, took sonic textures and, and anger and energy and combined them all. And those, those sort of records really inspired me, but so did like Pink Floyd's the wall or something it was just a massive thing to listen to and try to figure it out. Um, but you know, I, I went to college, I was studying film, like I said, and uh, I kind of started, I was doing electronic music, like my own personal stuff was kind of weird, like beeps and bleeps and noises. And uh I was just making cassettes. I was self-releasing cassettes. I'd found out about kind of the underground music scene. And there'd been a great radio station where I grew up in uh, Nevada City called KVMR. And in high school, I actually got my, uh, went there and took a course and got my little card so I could be a DJ, my FCC license. And, uh, and so when I went to college, I went and checked out the college radio station. I started DJing. Uh, I met some ladies there who were DJs and we started a band called Vomit Launch, actually. And uh, that's that's when I really started playing an instrument, started playing bass and uh, and kind of co-writing with with the the ladies and, and later uh, the drummer in the band. And uh, that became something I did for like eight years. And the recording process just kind of evolved from from playing the music. 
I, I'm guessing. Yeah, my my early years, you know, in the studio were were really as like the band's liaison with the producer, and we 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 did four albums, and we really utilized uh, people that were more producer engineers, and uh, and they really helped, you know, get our sound for help us figure out what our sound would be and help guide us in the studio. And I really we worked with really great people. Um, Greg Freeman was our first. A, a producer engineer and uh, he had been in a band called Palmel and also in the call and a few other things and he was just a good friend to begin with and he'd opened a studio so we did a few records there and then we did records at uh, in Sacramento with John Bacigalupi who later went on to be my partner with Tape Op magazine and in both cases I learned a lot about session flow and you know what you do when and how you guide a session how you do basic tracks overdubs all that kind of stuff, but I wasn't paying attention to the technical aspects. I wasn't like, you know, oh, how are you setting that mic free or that compressor? I didn't worry about that. I understood electronics and signal flow, but I didn't. I was there to to perform and and guide our music. And I, I think that when I realized that many years later, I realized I was really producing, you know, our own band, so to speak. I was the one that really had the vision for how things could sound and what we were going to do and what the overdubs were going to be and all these little notes I'd bring to the sessions. But, um, but I, you know, later I learned more as, as about engineering and stuff, you know, by necessity, I guess. <laughs> sure. Sure. That's, that's how things, that's how things get done. You throw some ideas around see what sticks, right? learn from your mistakes quite often. Yeah. Um, so do you, like poke and prod your musicians to like to get them to do their best and to inspire them. I mean, isn't that that as part of the job? Um, ever have an artist that just really just doesn't want your <laughs> wasn't want your help? Like, doesn't really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. I mean i I think when I first opened Jackpot, I was really treating it more like a passive role, and I was recording people, but I wasn't saying like, oh you know, sing that or go to this note instead. I wasn't getting as involved. I, I was a little standoffish maybe and I, because I didn't know about my own skills yet. I didn't feel like I was really, you know, ready to be called a producer. I didn't even know what that would mean. But, you know, I, so I think I was really standoffish and, and, and kind of like, oh, well, I recorded it. Are we done? You know, like I didn't suggest as much. But as I started making more records, I'd realize like, wow, that was really hard to mix if I just said like, hey, let's, let's try a different snare drum or let's change the the arrangement here. It would be easier to mix and would sound better. So I started making those calls, you know, and I think probably about three or so, four years into running Jackpot uh, in the late 90s, I was, I was really like taking charge more. And I, when I go back and look, put up one of those reels, if I've had, when I've had to do that, you know, I can see that everything's been just really, figured out you know like what went down to tape was so usable and so ready to go that mixing is really easy when you go back like i had to remix some decemberist tracks that i produced and i was like man this is so easy and i had learned to sculpt you know what went to tape very carefully you know through arrangements and through picking you know takes and through guidance you know and and that that was really good i i think I'm trying to think if anyone's ever pushed back on me, you know, I, I don't think I'm really overt. Like if somebody really has a strong vision, I pull back. And 
like in a case like the Decemberists, that was that band was in a real transitional period. They were their first record had come out. Now this is going to be their first record now for Kill Rock Stars, the record label, and the band wasn't was kind of formed around. Well, definitely was formed around Colin, the songwriter, but it wasn't. Um, you know, some of the players were kind of just coming in and out of the studio and, and adding parts like Chris Funk and Jenny uh, Conley to a degree. And, you know, so those parts would be kind of need to be figured out. And I was getting really into figuring that out. Like, oh, don't play here, play there, play this little pattern, change this, you know. And everybody was like, sure. And so kind of being, you know, helping guide the songs to be the best they could was great. I, you know, I, I don't remember... But there would be other sessions where someone would have a really strong vision. I would just step back and I'd be like, like, okay, a great example would be Matt Ward, M. Ward, or who also does the She and Him stuff with Zoe Deschanel. When I work with Matt, which I did last fall, he keeps things very close to the vest. Like he doesn't, he doesn't sit, walk in and say, here's a game plan and, and map everything out. He, he's just kind of taking the process as in stride and he tries to, guide it and figure out where it's going to go you know i don't generally need to say you should do this you should do that he's he's producing himself absolutely you know so in that case you know probably when the next record comes out i'll be credited as an engineer not a producer you know because i wasn't i was i was throwing in ideas but i didn't have to guide the entire process in such a heavy duty way i see in that case yeah it, it really is it's really kind of feeling the room and seeing what your role should be, you know, and right. not so much of like, I'm a dictator when I'm producing a record. <laughs> right. So uh, another quick thing about, uh, yeah. about tape op, when did that magazine come about? And uh, did you start that in Portland? Cause I remember seeing that at, I think Powell's books, uh, sure. 90, 95 or 96, somewhere in there. Um, 96. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, that started in 1996, and I was still, I hadn't opened Jackpot uh, Recording Studio yet. That happened a year later, but I had, um, for a number of years, I had written for, uh, about at that point, about a, over a decade, I'd written for small magazines, uh, like Option and uh, Sound Choice and Brave Ear and File 13, all of which are probably lost to time now. <laughs> But um, I wrote for all these small magazines. Uh, I'd been really inspired by a magazine out of Olympia in the early, early 80s called Op Magazine, OP. And um, strangely enough, I have a magazine called Tape Op. Hmm. But um, <laughs> Op Magazine was, was uh, they did, they did uh, issues A through Z and then they, they quit. And, uh, and it was all just focused on music that wasn't on major labels, basically. All kinds of styles, genres. And so I'd written for other magazines. I'd done record reviews, mostly a few interviews and things with people. And I'd even written for new, like local weekly papers and stuff like that. And uh, everything dried up. Like all of a sudden there weren't any, there were no outlets for my writing. And uh, I was talking to a friend who was the local arts and entertainment editor at the, editor at the, well, I'm at week at that time. And he was like, we're just batting around ideas. Like, oh, maybe, maybe we should start a zine or something which we never did together, but you know, we were just, I was like thinking like, this is the time zine culture was really big back then. There was a store in town called reading frenzy, which had all kinds of like alternative comics and underground magazines. That was a great and store. Was, 
it was a very great store. And, and Chloe Udaly, who ran that, uh, was later a city commissioner and uh, was just a really, really positive uh, force in that. And like, it, it, you know, just show like you can just do this. And and she carried the magazine right away, as did Powell's uh, and Super Digital here in town, which is a pro audio store. So um, I just, you know, I didn't have any outlet from writing. I was starting to record a lot at my house. I had like an eight track reel to reel and some stuff. And I thought, how about like an underground kind of zine about making records and home recording, musicians recording themselves and small studios and stuff like that. So it really began like that. It was Xeroxed. It was just limited. I would just, I would mail them around, you know, to friends all over the country. I started getting subscribers. And I did that for about two or three years on my own. And I was losing money. By the end, I was you know, sending it to a printer and then shipping them and dropping big boxes off at the post office, you know, to, that are all, you have to sort them by zip code, you know, and uh, it was a lot of work. And my friend, John Bacigalupi, who I'd been in touch with for years, uh, came up to Portland and wined and dined me and said, uh, you know, would you want, would you want to go into partnership on tape off? He was, he had another magazine at the time called Heckler, which was a skate and snowboarding and music magazine. Uh, down in Sacramento, California. And uh, and they thought if they had two magazines that they could put the staff to work more on it. And so we started that up and his staff disappeared and he kept stayed on. And John and, and I have been running the magazine ever since and co-own it. And, you know, it's just, it's now it's the largest circulation in the world for a recording magazine. And it's just owned by the two of us and a bunch of people help part-time on it and a bunch of people contribute and write and it's really it's been just a real pleasure now we're 25 years old this year this this coming month actually and that is also the name of your podcast correct yeah yeah well the tape op podcast is just an extension of the magazine uh some of them are repurposed interviews that weren't even meant to be podcasts and uh and then other ones we're doing now are just specifically for the podcast and we also have a uh, a podcast called Discussion, which uh, we interview people about records that they really enjoy. And that's like a shorter uh, podcast. And we do that every week that comes out. So that was going to be another content. another question. Is uh, vinyl or CD? What do you for like? For me? Yeah, for you personally. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like people used to ask, like, uh, tape or Pro Tools, you know. Right. Um, you know, I don't know if I, I'll get, I always get people mad, but listen, I've sat here in the studio and listened to mixes through the console, you know, off a two inch tape or out of really great converters and pro tools. And I've listened to like what is being, you know, mixed to make the final product, you know, whether it's a download or an album or an LP or whatever, and nothing is ever as good is listening to it here in the studio at full, absolute full maximum resolution on, you know, $10,000 monitors. Um, everything else is kind of, I, you call it downstream, right? You know, cause it's downstream from the, the, the best version. Everything else downstream is a, is a letdown, honestly. And I, I always get people really mad, but I, I hate the way, the work that I do ends up sounding on vinyl. It's not what I intend. 
Um, it's a limited format. There's surface noise. There's clicks and pops. There's you have to sum all the low end, or else the needles jump out of the groove. Uh, dynamic range is is subverted. I really, you know, as someone who really loves like the subtleties of music, I just I absolutely do not enjoy listening to vinyl. And when I have to approve a test pressing. I'm always like, oh God, you know, and then I'll listen and it's like, doesn't sound as good as it did, you know, off the digital file. I mean, and I, I'm sorry. There's people out there that have their own obsessions with LPs and stuff. And I like the format. I like, you know, the size and the artwork and all that stuff, but there's absolutely no way you can tell me that an LP sounds better than a properly played back digital file it's just impossible you know cds right. were obviously a compromise as well they're not they're you know they're generally mastered too loud generally and you're only 16-bit audio it's like i you know it's always you know it's always everything downstream is suffering <laughs> but this is all we have this is you know these are the formats that we that we get you know as a listening audience i mean uh is what it is. Music recording's been going on for just a little over a hundred years, right? 130 years, whatever it is. And format delivery formats have shifted continually. And nostalgia for a format that involves a physical rotating disc and a, a needle grinding away at a piece of plastic. You know, I mean, sorry <laughs> it's eventually it's going to be all dead it's not going to matter it's right now it's just to me it's just pure nostalgia or it's a reaction against you know poorly mastered cds or digital files or you know crummy ipod earbuds i mean whatever the problems people have had with listening to music over the years i mean most people most even people that really do enjoy music 90 percent of the time they're home whatever their listening situation is severely compromised as far as playback. I mean, you know, poor beats headphones or Apple earbuds or bad stereos or weird, you know, remember boom boxes that had those buttons in them that would make it sound wider or something that ruined mm. all the phase relationships. I mean, most people don't even have a good place to listen to music really, you know? And so it's all compromises. It, Having said all that, you know, I don't care what, if you're enjoying music and you're playing it back and you're listening to it in your car at home on in headphones and it's working for you, that is fantastic. You know, that's great. Cause I think enjoying recorded music is like one of my favorite things to do in the world. What but do I you, uh, what do you yeah. listen to? What, what, I'm sorry. What do you listen to yeah. yourself when you're at home relaxing after a day? What, what's the kind of stuff you like, like new stuff, modern stuff or? Music, music, yeah. What kind of music? Uh, yeah. boy, everything, everything. I mean, it could be Jay Z. It could be. Uh, we were listening to Tune Yard's new record. Uh, today it just came out. Today we listened to that and a Sam Smith live at Abbey Road record. My wife and I were listening to. I use a title, the music streaming service, which allows you to get you know sometimes master quality, a higher rate than CD. Uh, and I have a Sonos system, which kind of reduces that, but I have little speakers and, and stuff hooked up all around the house. And then at the studio, I can listen through 
you know, Burl converters and ATC monitors and really good stuff. But I mean, I listen, musically, I listen to so much. It could be like Lee Perry dub music, or it'll be like, you know, Bob Dylan and the band, or it might be Brian Eno's ambient records, or, you know, what was that? What was that? This morning I listened to David Bowie, and then I listened to uh, Queen. I put on a, a Queen's Greatest Hits, you know, like while I was in the shower. So, I mean, it, it could kind of, it just goes all over the map for me. You know, it could be jazz. Yeah. I love, I love music so much, you know. Yes, uh, as as do I. Um, thank you again. So back to the studio. What do you think yeah. is uh, the most important element that isn't equipment? <laughs> I mean, besides the people, which are, are the absolute most important thing, obviously, the people that and the people that bring in the songs, <laughs> um, the room. You know, a lot of times people forget how important the room is and the the facilities within the space. I mean, my first studio was just kind of a rectangle or a square kind of room with a low ceiling. And I didn't have any like isolation booths where you could put another musician or an amplifier initially. And um, the room didn't sound good, like acoustically, really. You had to try to get the room out of the equation, which made the job a lot harder. When I moved into this space 10 years later, uh, the new version of jackpot. Um, we built really high ceilings. This, built, this place was built from the ground up for me to move into. And we have high ceilings and a really a huge, a much bigger room for tracking drums and stuff. And all of a sudden drums sounded way better. And you know, that that's something you can't fix. You know, you can't fake that, you know, the, for the drums to react better and sound better in a space is so important. Um, you know, one of the, the, the people always obsess over recording equipment, as you sort of hinted at there. And uh, I have, you know, over a quarter million dollars of recording equipment, right? But I, at the end of the day, the I, it doesn't, it kind of doesn't really matter. You know, I, I can make a record on whatever is there. I've gone to studios in different places and made records on you know, what might be considered inferior equipment or something, but making, you know, making the musicians comfortable, setting up the space properly, recording things in a, in a proper manner for, for what we're trying to achieve. Those are all the things that are really important, you know, and sometimes that all those decisions are so much more important than what you're recording with or to. <laughs> Thank you so much, Larry. I think we'll wrap it up at that. And uh, really do appreciate your time. Larry Crane, Jackpot Studios, been a great honor to talk with you. And uh, thanks again. Thank Thank you. Next episode, I continue my conversation with Larry Crane. You can get past episodes wherever you get your podcasts, times like now, and subscribe if you would like. Special thanks to the letter J, Cody Robertson, for original music. I'm Trevor, and I can be reached trevor at timeslikenow.com. And I'll be talking with you next time.